Welcome back to the What's Cooking podcast with me, Beth, and my co-host, Kat. We talk to food and drink entrepreneurs about their businesses, how they got started, and what gets them out of bed in the morning. Today we're talking to Tom Hunt, chef, food writer, sustainability campaigner, and founder of Poco Tapas Bar in Bristol. So welcome to the podcast. Hi there. Could you start off by telling us about your first ever job? My first ever job? was a horrific I was a was I was a farm labourer and um, I was um, working on an intensive pig farm in Dorset where I was mucking out pig swell all day long um, every weekend this is 14 to 16 and I started on one pounds 50 an hour I think maybe left on two pounds <laughs> oh my gosh. but because I kind of lived in the middle of nowhere I managed to save a lot of the money and for some reason, like, you know, that 30 quid or whatever kind of stacked up. It goes a long way when you're in your Yeah, it really does. Yeah, it does. <laughs> um, but it was a horrific place to work, really. Yeah, I, I, it led to me becoming vegetarian at the time. Really? Yeah. Well, it was, it was strange, actually. It was almost like the two weren't quite linked. I, was, I knew that there were food. I knew it was a farm. But I was kind of like, you know, the vegetarianism was kind of like a sub subconscious to that, in fact. Mm. I don't know what, I can't explain it. Just felt it. Yeah. And I think it was my only way of making money. So. That is tough. What was your first ever job in food? Or how did you kind of start getting into food? Well, arguably, not arguably, that was my first job yeah. in food. But um, my first job cooking uh, was um, for, it was in my local pub, The Bottle Inn, which is where Hugh Fernie Whittingstall kind of competed in the nettle eating competition that happened each year that like featured on his TV series. I never competed, but I did, uh, I have since tried to eat raw nettles without stinging myself. There's a little technique where you fold them up and then pop them in your mouth. Actually quite delicious. If you just tie them into a little bundle, yeah. you can eat them without being stung. Interesting. Mm. So they're in that the... competition, they uh, compete by the meter. So how many meters of nettles they get through? Yeesh. But anyway, it was a, it was a great job because um, I met uh, my mentor to be and best friend Ben Hodges there. He his brother Jake Hodges around that time was opening Morrow mm -hmm. Sam and Sam Clark. And Ben and Jake had both worked at River Cafe and they both had a mother that lived in Spain. And so I kind of took, basically joined forces with Ben and kind of joined his motley crew of revellers traveling around the British music festivals. Um, so once kind of the pub work finished, we, um, yeah, spent the, spent the summer traveling around kind of Glastonbury, festival, all those kind of big festivals, and weddings, cooking incredible food. It was Soil Association certified as a cafe, which was probably the only time a festival cafe has been organic certified. Um, and the, the, we were just cooking like from scratch for thousands of people. And uh, I mean, it's going a bit far to say a river cafe quality, obviously, but in a sense, it was because the ingredients were that yeah, good. Yeah, the provenance. And okay. everything was cooked from scratch. And it was just, there was, and like, I was just so passionate about food. And so was he. So we ended up kind of building this great friendship around food and, and traveling and to Spain and, and so on. And so Poco, your restaurant, started as a pop-up and at festivals. Can you tell us a bit about that, where the idea came from? Yeah, well, working with Ben, travelling around the festivals, I think I worked with them for six years. And so I knew the festivals like the back of my hand and decided I should open my own place. And I was, so I was 24 years old and I was like, OK, I think this is a good idea. And put together a business plan and, and kind of saved up a very kind of small amount of money and built a website that looked like we were already operating and then applied to the festivals and got a cup like really late like kind of springtime before the festivals I got a couple of gigs Glastonbury, Shambhala, 
Beyond the Border, which is this incredible storytelling festival. And so I was like, okay, it's on. And we built the cafe in like a couple of months, basically. Uh, and <clears throat> for the cafe, I, I just we just I designed and built everything myself with my friends. Um, so we had two huge yurts with a big canopy joining them. And originally it was called the Shisha Lounge, but that became Poco. The second festival cafe opened was like a kind of an, an, a wagon, just like inspired by the the orange. Um, have you seen the orange juice vendors in the Gemma Ilfenar in Marrakesh? In the main market square in Marrakesh, there's it's an incredible atmosphere. Of it feels like medieval times of people like kind of singing to cobras and taming monkeys and or whatever. Maybe I got that um, in reverse. But um, anyway, they they serve they serve orange juice from these incredible kind of wagons. And so I kind of took some pictures and built one of those, and that became Poco Morocco which then evolved into the restaurant. So we were basically uh, kind of touring around the festivals every summer for about seven or eight years. And it just came to the point where it seemed like a no-brainer that we should open a restaurant. So we moved to Bristol and set up Poco. This is 2011. And can you tell us about the kind of ethos behind the food at Poco? Yeah, so whilst opening Poco in Bristol, I was based in London um strangely um the reason we opened in bristol is because the whole team lived in bristol so we'd finish the festivals they'd move back to bristol and no one would have any work and this incredible venue came up in stokes croft where we are today but at the same time i was in bristol setting up the forgotten feast and starting my work in food waste so this is 2010 11 and i um yeah the forgotten feast basically is uh, an initiative or campaign for sustainable food through celebration and dining. And we put on these big kind of food waste banquets in the middle of London. We did one on Southwark Bridge. Um, we did one on the terrace of the Royal Festival Hall, one in Fairshares Warehouse. And that just kind of was this incredible time for me because I was just like learning all about these serious food sustainability issues. Um, and kind of creating this kind of social enterprise, really. And so when it came to opening the restaurant, my partners and I felt like it would be sacrilegious to just open a kind of everyday eatery and that really we should take the, the kind of model of the Forgotten Feast, this kind of like really a kind of model of a social enterprise and apply that to the restaurant. So... The, the restaurant kind of took on all of the values that a social enterprise might. So um, sustainability and kind of the way that we treat our staff and everything kind of came, like really became the core of the business and um, our key priority. Talk about your the provenance of what of the ingredients that you're using. So the fish, the meat, and the fruit and veg. Where, like, how have you developed those relationships with farmers and suppliers? So for me, as a chef, like the the first thing to consider when it came to the sustainability of our restaurant was the the sourcing of the food. Because that's kind of, as a chef, that's kind of what you care about first and foremost. Um, and mostly because of the quality. Um, but, and, and the flavour and the extra taste that you get from sourcing food in that way. Um, but we decided that we should source our food as locally as possible. Uh, our fresh produce to start with. Um, so we, we committed to only using 100% seasonal produce, which would mean grown within a certain area, or at least in the UK. Um, we tightened that to kind of procure most of our food from within 50 miles of the restaurant, um, which is actually easier than you'd think. Even in London, there's so many incredible kind of farms popping up 
or and that have existed for a very long time. Um, and so, you know, seasonality and locality is certainly not everything. You can have really environmentally damaging food grown on your doorstep. Mm. So that has to go hand in hand with kind of better farmed produce, which you could which could be taken as organic or at least some form of equivalent. It certainly doesn't have to have a certification. It probably um, depends on the practices more more so than perhaps the accreditation. Yeah. Yes, yes on the practices, but the brilliance and the importance of the accreditation is that you can trust it. Yeah. Mostly. Yeah. Like whereas when you you haven't got accreditation or certification of organic standards, then you you're taking their word for it a little bit. And if you visit the farm and dig deep and you know what to ask them, mm. then that's worthwhile. In my experience, a lot of farmers who say we're better than organic, as soon as you kind of enter into a conversation with them, you find out that they're using kind of non-organic feed, which yeah. it would have been kind of like corn and all sorts of you know chemicals and soy and so it's really important when you don't have a certification to know the farmer yeah which is a key part of my root to fruit manifesto actually is like knowing where your food comes from and know know your farmer and that really helps when you're sourcing from sourcing locally but yeah it's it's so it's it's not about certification it's definitely about the practices but it's making sure they're transparent and true but as I said earlier it really leads that all leads to kind of this incredible kind of produce that is tends to increase the nutrition and and flavor of your diet or menu if you're talking restaurants. And Poco has been recognized for your kind of sustainability efforts so in 2016 you were named sustainable restaurant of the year and then more recently, you've been awarded a Food Made Good Award by the Sustainable Restaurant Association. Can we discuss what the what that means and what the kind of gravitas of that is? Yeah, I mean, for us, kind of, uh, the Sustainable Restaurant Association is part of our identity. We've been a member for the lot since we kind of opened, almost. And they, again, it goes back to accreditation and transparency. So they have a very rigorous survey that we fill in each year, and uh, as well as many restaurants across uh, in the industry. Um, and that survey kind of breaks down sustainability into like various areas that all relate to the sustainable development goals. And so, and then you're accredited, kind of one, two, or three stars. And then they have an award ceremony at the end of the year. And just, I mean, we, you know, due to our practices, we've often been awarded Sustainable Business of the Year. But this year we were kind of, we entered into the the uh, Hall of Fame, they called it. They created the award for us because we, yeah, they were like, it's time for you to retire from winning the awards. Um, you know, let someone else win it. Um, and so, yeah, so... That, that means a huge deal to us. It's, like, kind of incredible. And, I mean, the team, like Ian Clark, our chef who runs the restaurant, is kind of just taking the, the you know, everything we throw at him in terms of these kind of high, these important concepts of eating better food and, ter like, turning it into practice, into a kind of profitable... Mm -hmm. Um, and successful business, along with yeah Barry Simmons, the manager, and my partners uh, Ben Pryor and Jen Best. Um, it's just kind of like, you know, it's it's easy to make these targets, but to actually meet them and and be mm -hmm. profitable, yeah, is takes some real skill. Well, I was, yeah, I was wondering about that. Aside from the sourcing of ingredients, what does being a sustainable operation look like kind of day-to-day -day operationally in the restaurant? I mean, to get away from just food, it's, you know, the, the energy, so we're using renewable energy, um, with, and that obviously is a cost, but it's like a, so valuable when it comes to kind of uh, our impact on the environment. Mm -hmm. um, we're paying for all of the food 
the compost to be anaerobically digested mm -hmm. and turned into a compost, basically, um, which again is a huge is hugely important. In some boroughs or cities, it's free of charge, but unfortunately in Bristol we have to pay for it. So, but then in the restaurant itself, kind of, so working backwards from, from the, the compost and the recycling. So everything's recycled unless something slips through the net, basically. So we've vetted, like, the products that we do buy to make sure that the packaging is recyclable, which often it isn't, mm. um, especially kind of, thin kind of either cling film which we we stopped using like five years ago um or um the kind of thin cellophane packaging that you get often yeah, there's always wraps around yeah things, so that's not recyclable so we had to vet all of that um and so everything's recycled um or composted anaerobically digested and then um so working backwards the plates basically the the plate waste is analysed too. So if a customer regularly leaves, leaves something on the plate, it gets marked up and noticed, mm -hmm. basically, and maybe and may, an action is taken or it's removed from the plate. Um, and then in the kitchen, it's a case of, well, what I call root-to-fruit eating. So and that so that's kind of begins with the concept of zero-waste cooking, um, but kind of quite quickly broadens out and into um, those kind of deeper food sustainability ideas around kind of sourcing and um, and some of the things we've already touched on like knowing your farmer and mm. supporting biodiversity um, eating local and all those things and so yeah really it's kind of like kind of the plate a plate of food might be thought of in a different way um, and of put together like with that kind of holistic philosophy in mind uh, a beetroot won't just be peeled and, and kind of pureed if the skin can be left on it will be which is kind of valuable fiber and nutrition and then of course the leaves and the stalks and everything like that are used too. Could we talk more about your philosophy around sustainability and root to fruit the whole ethos because you've started mentioned that you started with the zero waste uh, scandal and just the scale of it and then from there you have learned about and included all these different branches within your work so could we be interesting to hear how you learn about these new issues? Yeah well I mean I've always been around people that think in this way mm. like i like being vegetarian at a young age meant that I visited a lot of health food shops and really a lot of the food that you would find in a health food shop or a decent one is kind of comes from this way of thinking. Um, food sustainability has argued, well, kind of, and these kind of notions or anti kind of industrial farming have existed since industrial farming began in the 20s. With like Rudolf Steiner and biodynamics uh, and, and things like that. So, although it feels like kind of we're in this, we are in this new wave of food sustainability, but it's certainly not a new thing. Mm. So, um, yeah, growing up as a vegetarian and kind of like also living, when we moved to Dorset, I was living on a, a farm um, that was far, a far more kind of holistic farm than the intensive farm that I was working on. Um, and then I, later on, kind of, well, travelling around the festivals also, like, you know, we had a cafe in the greenfields for 15 years. That's everything to do with sustainability yeah. and always has been. So it's permaculture, uh, which is another kind of incredible philosophy, uh, food sustainability philosophy and way of farming or kitchen gardening. Mm. Um, and there was always a permaculture garden at Glastonbury um, and and then I um, later on lived on a permaculture farm in a yurt that I'd built this is just before uh, building the, f the festival cafe which I built on this permaculture farm actually so we made the yurts on the farm 
And so that kind of those permaculture values are everything that people talk about now. Um, so, yeah, in that sense, it's always been with me. And then River Cottage, where I worked in 2004, you know, the, Hugh was, Hugh Fernley Whittingstall was taking those values again and kind of just the importance of local food. And so working there was like a great education in uh, better meat. And yeah, really, I, I kind of describe it as I learned to stick by my morals by working there because everything had to be seasonal. If it wasn't, then we were kind of like, you know, told off and it was sent back and it was a it was an issue so I I learned okay kind of to stick to what's important um and kind of to stick to to create and stick to a manifesto yeah. which is what I've done with Root Fruit Eating and my new cookbook um Eating for Pleasure People and Planet so I've I've kind of developed that manifesto beyond kind of its zero waste roots um, which it began as into this kind of broad and holistic food sustainability f philosophy because that's what we what we need really mm -hmm. I mean we don't need recipes for how to use banana skins we need to understand how and why we're wasting food and why that's important yeah I totally agree you mentioned you were saying before and it is something that we've discussed before on the podcast that how particularly in this country, we've lost the value of food and food is so cheap that, and we, because the, we've lost that connection as well because we buy it off the shelf, often wrapped in packaging. It completely loses where it's come from, essentially. Um, I think that's really interesting and you're definitely highlighting more of that connection. And it's even, you know, we buy things pre-prepared and I think it goes down to that as well because a lot of your cooking obviously you use, you know, you use the stalks and the peelings or there aren't peelings in the first place because you don't peel it but you know we buy or we have available to buy on the shelves you know peeled carrots chopped up butternut squash everything's just kind of there and you don't have to think about it. Although I do think a small portion of that is okay because there are people who Maybe if they've got if you've got mobility issues or maybe kind of fine motor skills are difficult, but that is a small percentage of the population for sure. Yeah, and people are time inefficient, or you know, people are often like through my work, the two main things that people have an issue with are money and time, mm. and the cost they that they think good food uh, costs and the time that it takes to prepare. Yeah, and that's kind of obviously fair enough we're all human and um but uh there's also kind of like that's kind of been a core focus of my root to fruit philosophy really is making it as accessible as possible and addressing those two key issues of time and money mm. and kind of that's where that's why the zero waste philosophy of root to fruit eating is so important because it reduces um obviously reduces waste which has to be seen as a budget for buying that better quality food mm. also there's so many other things like just eating more plants reduce and more legumes and pulses reduces your food bill massively even when you're buying organic yeah um and then um so those kind of better quality ingredients taste literally taste so much better that they need very little doing to them to make taste delicious so you don't need to like take a complex recipe it takes time to cook from a recipe and that's why um in my book i've spent some time kind of starting each chapter with a few non-recipes or anti-recipes that teach people how to cook without recipes because actually a lot of waste can happen from cooking from recipes because yeah. you have to buy a number of ingredients. Um, it takes a long time to learn something that's new. The second time you make that recipe or the third time it will get quicker. But um, if you can learn just, I mean, the, the first point of my root fruit manifesto is to eat for pleasure. 
none of that comes with comes cook with love confidence and creativity because so often it's there's this kind of barrier that I see like even my mum who's a great cook kind of sometimes lacks confidence in creating a new recipe or just winging it yeah when actually that's a really good way to reduce waste and brilliance of it all is is that when you've got spent a little bit more on fewer better ingredients they need so little preparation that it can take kind of minutes to make a meal mm. it's just kind of empowering people with that information and the confidence to get in the kitchen without having to follow a recipe but that is definitely the key to you use a recipe and it only uses half a pot of creme fraiche or half a lemon or something yeah you're going to have some waste and you need to have the tools to understand how you could use that Mm, exactly and I mean it's worth touching on as well like there are a lot of people that can't afford to buy even vegetables Mm. and but that's another issue I, I agree with you when you said earlier that food's actually too cheap um, often kind of we like you'll get kickback from a statement like that because people there's a lot of people in poverty that can't afford food and they yeah. think that food's too expensive or not they they don't but other people might who can afford good food um, but the reality is that's poverty and that actually food is too cheap and doesn't reflect the the cost of making it which is essentially why we're able to produce such poor quality food that damages the environment because all of those externalities um, and pollution actually cost the taxpayer a huge amount of money aren't currently quantified. Mm. So we are paying the price for that more damaging food that comes at a cheaper price. Um, And so kind of, but it's, yeah, I mean, the other thing to argue, of course, is that it's not, just our responsibility as individuals like it's really important for us to engage as citizens and eat the best food we can but uh, actually it's the government and our food corporations that need to change first. I was going to ask you about that do you think about policy and and that element because that is a huge part of it you feel or I feel sometimes that supermarkets have a lot of power and they could swap their packaging if they wanted to to paper or something a similar material it wouldn't I mean I'm talking from a a lay person so don't understand the inner workings of a supermarket they could make some big changes that would make a huge impact and whether that was driven by internal or a government kind of thing what do you yeah do you think about policy and what kind of impact you can have in that area yeah I mean in terms of food policy I'm a layman too Mm. Um, but a lot of the inspiration for my book came from uh, food policy professor Tim Lang who wrote sustainable diets with Pamela Mason who is also my researcher for my book eating for pleasure people and planet and so they both know a lot about food policy and basically singing from the same hymn book in a good sense um, and pressuring the government through uh, Brexit and things like that um, to improve their policies. Whether that will happen or not is a different, is a different matter. Um, but, yeah, I'm totally thinking uh, politically mm. a lot of the time. And I think, yeah, I mean, it's a political statement to, to eat better and to talk about it um, and to support you know, an MP that has kind of an environmental agenda and a better food agenda, which is self-missed. Um, so I think it's all kind of really vital um, and the way that we're going to see this change happening much quicker. I mean, through working in the industry and rubbing shoulders with corporations like Unilever and Danone and going to the Eat Foundations kind of, uh, forum and things like that, I see, I do see like a big change from food corporations. Mm-hmm. Like the, in some ways they're ahead of the curve 
compared to individuals because they see that kind of hunger for kind of more environmentally friendly food from customers and so that's turned it feels like it's become this kind of race and a positive race towards that but at the same time you know they're pushing you know more processed food out to kind of further parts of the of the globe that they haven't been to before that are even more damaging than so it's kind of there's some often this kind of too, slightly two-faced kind of feeling to, to these corporations but there's also this kind of this kind of hunger for it and this change that is certainly happening and that hopefully they'll spread throughout their their global corporation it kind of feels like within those corporations there are multiple agendas and maybe a lack of communication and at some point the hope is I guess that they'll all meet <laughs> somewhere in the middle and that can kind of be incorporated into what they're doing moving forwards but I guess at least it's happening somewhere that's yeah there's start. definitely positive movement in a lot of places you can see it it's just yeah waiting for it to come through a bit more I think can we talk a little bit more about the forgotten feast and how that started and I liked how you described it as a celebration because I think that within the conversation of food waste everything can get quite negative and quite sort of blamey and it's nice that you were using that conversation as a way to celebrate food at the same time. You're doing that, that started with Tristan Stewart, is that right? Who well, to, was involved? Yeah, so two of his partners um, invited me to feed 200 people on Southwark Bridge and using food that would have otherwise been wasted. And I just kind of saw it as this instant, uh, like I saw it instantly as this kind of incredible like, opportunity to talk about climate change and the environment and delved into it headfirst and created a business out of it or this social enterprise out of it. And, and so it began kind of with this huge feast, kind of outdoors, um, and we called it the Forgotten Fish Restaurant because it kind of was it was off the back of Hughes' fish fight as well. So we were using fish discards, and we created this kitchen just on the bridge and cooked for these two hundred people, and it was such a fun event. Like we filmed it actually. There's a, there's a short film of the event, and then that kind of just snowballed into all of these kind of other events. Um, which, as yeah, as you were kind of picked up on, were all about celebrating the solutions. So kind of using discards, not wasting food, buying the, those kind of better quality ingredients, and then creating like a conversation around the table just through that circumstance rather than kind of telling everyone, like, you know, over-communicating it. It was just mm -hmm. like, kind of like, we're doing this because these are brilliant ingredients to use and why should they be wasted? And where, for that initial event on the bridge, where was the food coming from? So Eloise Day, who was one of my partners, kind of tracked down the fish by kind of calling different fishmongers and visiting them. Um, so there's a lot of cold calling. Yeah. Um, we got a, like, brilliant donation from Abel and Cole. Uh, like... At every point of the food chain, there's waste. So we had some kind of gleaned cauliflowers from from Kent that uh, would have been collected by Fair Share and Tristan Stewart's charity now called Feedback. Um, and then there was even some kind of like mislabeled kind of supermarket produce. But most of it was like, actually all of the fresh produce was organic. Um, I didn't want to kind of make any exceptions to the quality of our food and sadly we I was able to do to do that because there was just kind of all this kind of incredible food being wasted no real reason other than it's kind of overripe or um, just kind of a glut yeah I think that is yeah it is incredible when you think about it what like you say, there's waste at every single stage, and that is just down to 
overproduction because they have to and the wrong shape, the wrong size. Okay, so you've got a new book coming out. When's the release date? March. March. Eating for Pleasure, People and the Planet. Based zero waste climate cuisine. That's right. Yeah, talk about what the premise of the book is. Yeah, so it's um it's kind of a culmination of my last ten years working on food waste and the environment through creating the Root to Fruit Manifesto and it's kind of evolved into this broad um, food sustainability philosophy I've written up in the book. So it's not like a normal cookbook. The first kind of third of the book is kind of this in-depth look into how we can eat better, all kind of based around and chaptered by the manifesto. And then, but then of course it's practical too and kind of delves into the recipes, uh, which are kind of for every day. So from morning to night, breakfast, lunch and dinner, there's morning meals and the kind of initial recipes. It's designed by this incredible designer in Sydney called EVO. And so we've got a lot of kind of interesting kind of illustrations and graphs in the book. So I mentioned earlier that the first kind of few well, non-recipes are like teaching people at the beginning of every chapter are teaching people how to cook without recipes. So there's a kind of interesting chart for how you might kind of invent your own pancakes using any kind of flour. And then that links to the, you know, these kind of food sustainability ideas of supporting biodiversity. So it's encouraging kind of using different grains uh, as opposed to just a kind of general white flour it's kind of like and it it kind of describes how flexible recipes can be um, because really it's very easy to make a pancake from any flour it can almost be any consistency mm. we've kind of found ourselves in this realm of thinking that there's everything needs this kind of perfect combination of ingredients to work yeah. so it's kind of really flexible and open but then there are recipes too so in, it's in for breakfast there's kind of one of the first recipes is um, so there is a whipped kind of butter bean puree with grilled wild garlic rose duca and mushrooms wild mushrooms that sounds amazing it's very pretty <laughs> it's a very pretty dish with the rose petals and mm. uh, but also very kind of simple to make and if you can't get ramsons or wild garlic, that's fine. You can just kind of grill a little bit of spinach or whatever you do have. I think the best kind of cookbooks are the ones which you actually learn from as well. They're actually helpful. So you saying about having a base recipe and giving people this confidence to know you can switch out this, 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 this. Just, I don't know, just makes it far more accessible. People are actually going to use it more than perhaps another style of cookbook. Um, and perhaps, and even more so for someone who's new to cooking, or like you said, is time poor. Mm. So you recently were um, involved in a short stage at Noma. Can you tell us about that and why you decided to to undertake that? Yeah, absolutely. So kind of Noma has been, well, it's this obviously been known as the best restaurant in the world and awarded that many times. You know, although that award award can seem arbitrary, that you know, eating there last year for the first time after following the restaurant for ten years, it stood up to all my expectations, and was just kind of phenomenal in terms of like the service and the elegance of the food and and the te- and the team working there. So when we were there, we got chatting to Rene Redzepi and asked him if we could come and work in the kitchen which he kindly obliged to and so I kind of traveled back to Copenhagen and spent two weeks doing a short stage kind of working day in day out at the restaurant Um, and it was kind of really an incredible learning curve see you know 100 there was a hundred chefs kind of all working together to produce a, a meal for 50 people and the 
learning of the depth of research and kind of knowledge that goes into each dish was just mind-blowing. Hundreds of hours. There's a research kitchen, a fermentation kitchen, both full-time, and then another kind of hundred chefs kind of doing service. And I mean, I was there because I've kind of, I'm dabbling with more avant-garde or haute cuisine and kind of fine dining. And I'm interested in that. I used to hate, when I was like cooking back with Ben Hodges back in the day, like I was appalled by kind of those frilly kind of frou-frou dishes that you'd see in in kind of haute cuisine and fine dining restaurants. But that's all changed, uh, especially with the Nordic food movement, where a lot of the food is nature-based. It's really is about biodiversity and kind of reflecting the quality of the ingredients, which is what I've always been about. So, and then I feel like fine dining in some ways, although the price is inaccessible to many, the food itself has become more accessible depending on where you're at. Like, obviously, some food at Noma is just crazy, like eating ants and stuff like that, and people might feel alienated by it. But actually, a lot of the kind of the new fine dining or modern dining food movement is based around kind of those natural ingredients that come from good farms and it's about representing them kind of beautifully on the plate with respect so I'm drawn to that elegance um, and respect for the food and love kind of playing with food and, and in that way and presenting food in that way without the frou-frou but with that kind of extreme respect and elegance. Yeah, it kind of ties into what you were discussing before about the celebration of ingredients and showing up the with using them simply but well. Exactly. And I think that's kind of... There's an element of that within eating for pleasure, people and planet. Mm. Because it's, it also links back to what I was describing about kind of how earlier in terms of the Root to Fruit Manifesto, how actually cooking with those better quality ingredients, they need less doing to them to taste good. So cooking can become very quick, efficient. Um, uh, and so that, that links completely to that new fine dining movement, or that's more like casual fine dining, people call it, whatever that means. Yeah. But um, it's the same, really. It's like kind of... And, and so that, there's an element of that in the book and like that kind of experimenting with the presentation of the food through simplicity and, yeah, and kind of eating with your eyes and celebrating the ingredients through kind of just displaying them beautifully on the plate without too much fuss. Yeah. I'd really like to talk about your Guardian column feel that you're redefining what food waste or what we consider food waste to be. I think perhaps before reading your column and your articles, I would consider food waste to be maybe bits that have gone off in the fridge or perhaps the end of a courgette or, you know, peelings perhaps. But you're ta- you've taken it to another level and it's fish skins, it's onion peelings, it's the paper bits of onions, it's chilli stalks. Can we talk about how you're developing these recipes? It's been a really fun column to write. Um, and that's the brilliant thing I love about being a food writer is of all of the learning that comes with that. So like writing the book and studying kind of food sustainability and writing my vegetarian living column defines kind of like different words within food sustainability it's like a lexicon of food sustainability words um and then the guardian column which is kind of yeah simple in the fact that it's taking foods that would have otherwise been wasted byproducts or um odds and ends of ingredients and turning them into something delicious um but at the same time i try and 
dig a little bit deeper wherever I can into the kind of broader kind of sustainability topics around that ingredient. Mm -hmm. So if I'm so like talking about fish, like how to make a piece of fish skin delicious, I'll kind of usually try and mention how you need to buy that fish or even though it's just a kind of waste product because it's still the sustainability of the ingredient is still really important but yeah I mean I in terms of how I write it I practically I am I sit down and I create a long list of things that kind of I think are wasted often by people or by myself and then come up try and create a solution and recipe or number of recipes for how to prevent that waste. Um, so I'm just writing a few at the moment and I've just done a marmalade out of orange peels alone. Because um, often we kind of, you know, peel and a satsuma or an orange and we just kind of discard the skin. But actually that's kind of, can be as much as kind of 20% of that ingredient or more. And again, that's that budget for buying the kind of organic orange or, um, and, but if you can use that orange skin, then it's really not costing you anymore. Um, and marmalade made with just this kind of the skin is totally delicious. Um, and easily comparable with any other marmalade and better if you're using really good quality ingredients. Um, what else have I been doing? I've been doing, um, don't think of any examples now. The onion skins that you mentioned was a tough one because yeah. I, I'd heard of onion skin ash, but I was a bit sceptical. I mean, it is like a chef ingredient at the end of the day. <laughs> it's always going to be a chef ingredient. Yeah. But through testing it, I learned how delicious it actually was. I thought it was literally just going to taste of burnt oven, <laughs> but it didn't. It had this coffee, chicory deep onion kind of flavour to it that's actually a really interesting seasoning. Um, what else? Someone, a reader wrote to me yesterday asking me how to ferment um, pumpkin guts, the seeds and the kind of innards that you might scoop out from the centre to make the, the powder that I'd made before um, or written about in the Guardian column. And because they'd loved, they'd loved it, and we just kind of sprinkling it on everything, and it's this kind of like proteinous, full flavored umami kind of seasoning that all you could replace a stock mm. or anything like that, and it's it doesn't take it takes minutes to make, um, and fermenting it takes it a step further in terms of its kind of depth and flavor, and so yeah, it's it's kind of like kind of I sit down and just wrap my brains and come up with kind of and invent whatever I can. I would be really interested to hear kind of how within your day-to-day -day cooking for yourself and for your family, how kind of strict are you with imported produce and packaging and things like that? Yeah, well, I've, I've, I have attempted full zero waste living at points. I did it over Christmas a few years ago for 45 days over the Christmas period because that's the time when we make waste the most yeah. in terms of like packaging packaging presents and, and food um, and it actually it was really enjoyable and I felt like all of the solutions like kind of visiting a health food store or going to your local market um, could be done efficiently and were far more enjoyable than just the kind of drudgery of kind of trawling around the supermarket. Um, I rarely shop in supermarkets. It's kind of my last resort. Mm -hmm. um, so we we visit the local market, Broccoli Market, and kind of pick up our milk uh, in a refillable bottle and like all the veggies unpackaged, more or less. Um, and then at home, uh, yeah, I've kind of, kind of stocked myself out with jars and buy in bulk to kind of reduce the packaging too. Because at the end of the day, those zero waste shops are um, buying those products in packaging. So I kind of go past that and just buy the bulk juice, which aim to use recycled, like the restaurant, only buy recyclable packaging Yeah. whenever I can. Um, so yeah, I'd say the, the, the good thing about a business is you can set 
kind of rules and a structure to achieve kind of considerable targets um, or ambitious targets that can be harder as a human being in your own home. But also, you know, this isn't about, for me, you know, it's not about kind of being an extremist. Um, it's about eating for pleasure and really connecting with your food and knowing where it comes from. And generally, kind of, though, it all goes hand in hand. So those better ingredients, visiting the market, kind of improving that kind of food community. And it's like, it's this virtuous circle of like brilliant, delicious food. Yeah, and gentle rather than, like you said, extremist. Yeah, although I have been like extreme in my kind of, yeah, ambitions in the past, I think at the end of the day, that's not necessarily accessible for everyone. Mm. And like my life is food, so that's fine. Yeah, you've got to start um, somewhere. But yeah, I mean, like anyone can easily base their weekly shop around some seasonal produce. And that's kind of, and you bolt on them, you know, some mangoes and whatever else. But like actually just kind of moving towards some core organic kind of plant-based foods as the centre of your, at the centre of your diet really kind of does wonders for your everything from your health from personal to planetary health. I think that's quite a nice place yeah, to turn. And that was great. Cool. So can you just tell us where people can find and follow you? Yeah, so you can um, find me on Instagram, Chef Tom Hunt, at Chef Tom Hunt, or Twitter. I'm most active on Instagram um, and love to chat or have any comments on there. Um, I've also got a website as well which is uh, tomsfeast.com and otherwise, yeah, I kind of my guardian column, books and events. Yeah, look out for the new book in March. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Instagram at What's Cooking Podcast, on Twitter, What's Cooking Pod, or drop us an email at the What's Cooking Podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to subscribe, leave us a review or a star rating.